All right, well, if you have a Bible, you turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going back to Mark tonight. And actually, don't want anybody to clap, but we're going to finish chapter 1 and move into chapter 2. You can clap if you want to. That's fine. That's where we're at. So we're going to be in Mark 1, beginning in verse 40, and we'll read down into chapter 2, verse 12. And there came a leper to him, Mark 1, 40, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away. And said unto him, See thou sayest nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the sick of palsy? Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen it on this fashion. Well, let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll open up our eyes to see the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority that you've given him and that he has not only to forgive but also to heal all manner of sickness and disease. And I just ask you that you'll show us that that's the Lord we're trusting in and open our eyes to see you clearly, more clearly tonight. And we pray that in Jesus' name. So we need to kind of keep in mind as we progress through this beginning part of Mark's gospel that Mark, he's out to demonstrate something. And what is that that he's out to demonstrate? What he's wanting to demonstrate is what he states in chapter 1, verse 1. And that is that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is the Son of God, the anointed king, God himself. And he's saying if that is the case, if that is who he is, then he will have all authority and power over all of creation, whether it's the spirit world, physical sickness, or even our spiritual conditions. He has authority and power over all of that. So going back, if you go to verse 121, when Jesus entered the synagogue and begins to teach, clear through, if you read from there, clear through to where we ended today in 2.12, where he forgives the paralytic's sins and raises him up. What you have mentioned there from 121 all the way to 2.12 is the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's spoken of and it is demonstrated by what he does. So you have his authority in preaching the word and the power of the spirit. And they said when he did that, when in that synagogue in the beginning, the middle of chapter one, that they were astonished, amazed at his doctrine. They said, for he taught them as one that had authority. Talking about his authority. And then went on in that same synagogue, he commands that unclean spirit to shut up and come out of that man. It said they were astonished at his doctrine. 
What is this, they said, for with authority commands he even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. We also see his authority to heal the most loathsome disease. So he didn't have to pray to God when that leper came to him. When he came and asked for healing, he said, I will be thou clean. That's the authority he has over sickness. And also his authority, the last thing we'll see is his authority to forgive sins. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And I'm saying when you look at all of that, when we see our Lord in that light with what he does and what authority and power that is resident in him, that should be a source of great encouragement and comfort to us. It really should be. He's the Lord we're serving. And the last thing Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28 was this. All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. That's what he said. There's nothing in heaven and earth that is not under the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that means no sickness, no demon, no sin, no government, no situation. There is nothing that we can think of that is not under his total authority. And so we need to let that sink in. That that's the case. Because he goes on to say, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. And he says, go therefore. Because of that, he's saying, you can go in confidence. Go therefore unto all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. Why? Because he has all authority. We can accomplish his will, whatever it is he wants us to do. Because he is going with us. And he ends that great commission by saying, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so what we need to think about is and meditate on, when we get up in the morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is going with us through our day. Do we think like that? I don't I have to admit, I don't always think in those terms, but we should. Because that's what we're reading. That's what he says he does. He is right there with us. And how is that? How is he right there with us? Through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what he says? You read John 14. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans or desolate is what the word means. I'm not going to leave you by yourself. He says, no, I will come to you. That's what he told his disciples. And he's come to us, hasn't he? I mean, most of us in here that are Christians have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? And he has come to us. And he went on to say in John 14, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we, my father and I, Jesus said, we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's us. Right? So you put that all together and Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. No problem or situation that is above his sovereign power. And so as we go forth into our day, he is going forth with us and not just in theory it's not just a theory it's not just a fairy tale or something in a book it's the reality of what he says right we can truly say then as starla said i think it was last week greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world we are not too deep to get beyond the basic scriptures like that that we have learned many years ago and that's the way we need to approach our day every day greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith that he's with us. Faith that he's in us. Faith that the one that has all authority and power over any situation is walking with us through the day. Trust in our living Savior that he's walking with us. And I think we just need to meditate on that and let that reality sink in. So we last left Jesus where we were in John chapter 1 telling his disciples, and I think they were kind of surprised that I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to rest on my success in Capernaum. You know, they're like, everybody's looking for you. They want to make you a hero. We got it made. He's like, no, I'm going to other towns and villages to preach because that is the purpose. That is the reason the Father has sent me to this earth. And so where we pick up here in verse 40, what we started reading here today, out of one of those towns comes a leper to him. And the thing is, what's funny about this is we don't have any idea what his name is. We don't know where he's from. His only way we identify this guy is he's a leper. A leper comes to him. 
And I'll tell you, leprosy back then was a loathsome disease. It was widespread in Jesus' time. You know, we read in the gospel, different gospel accounts, he encounters several lepers. We have some misconceptions about leprosy. So some leprosy was contagious, but some was not. Not all leprosy was contagious like what you might see in some old biblical movie, that most of those are a waste, believe me. <laughs> but later on in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 14, 3, it talks about he went and had dinner with Simon the leper. So either Simon the leper had a leprosy that wasn't contagious, which is very possible, or we don't know, it doesn't say, or he could have possibly been healed by Jesus. We tend to think of leprosy, there's one type of leprosy that's called Hansen's disease. And that's the kind that eats your flesh away and it really looks bad. But biblical leprosy, if you look back in Leviticus 13 and 14, it includes a number of other skin diseases that were harmless. Some of them were harmless. Some of them were curable. So the things that would fall under the category of leprosy would be boils, burns, itches, ringworm, and a number of scalp conditions. And I don't want to make you nervous, Mr. Rudy, but certain types of baldness. I'm right there with you. You had certain types of baldness, they'd be checking you out to make sure you were okay. <laughs> That's just the way it was. But the ones that did have that contagious leprosy, I'm telling you, they were dreaded and put away from society. And if you ever read Leviticus 13 and 14, there's quite a few things it lays out there that happens to these people. But in Leviticus 13, it says this, As for the leper who has the plague, here's what he had to do. He had to tear his clothes the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and it says he shall cover his mustache. So he had to have a covering from here on down over his face. And he had to walk around crying out, unclean, unclean, to let anybody know he was coming around. And it says in the Bible, he shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. And listen to this. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be out to camp and I'm telling you that would have been you think about it that would have been a terrible existence no spiritual fellowship outside the camp because the temple and God and the tabernacle whenever that was all inside the camp you're put outside of the camp that's a bad place to be because when you're out there you are without hope and without God and that's the way Paul describes us in Ephesians that we, when we were sinners and Gentiles, we were without hope and without God. So Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, said that socially a leper was no different than he was a corpse. No different socially than just being a corpse. In Numbers 5, it says this, The Lord told Moses to command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and drove them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people did. So a leper was considered like a dead person, and they were put outside the camp so that they wouldn't defile the camp. And so it's implied in the Old Testament that God is the one who causes someone to be a leper, and only God can cure it. So when King Uzziah, I don't know if you remember the story, when he tried to offer incense in the temple, only allowed by the priest, but in his arrogance, King Uzziah thought, I'm going to do it myself. And the priests, when they see what he's doing, they confront him. And all of a sudden, God smites him. And here's what they saw. Here's what it says. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. They got him out of the temple. Yea, he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. So the Bible says it was the Lord that had smitten him, and he was a leper until the day he died. Cut off from the temple, cut off from God's presence, and only God could cure him, and he wasn't cured. In 2 Kings 5, you'll remember this story, 
talking about leprosy, the king of Syria, he writes a letter to the king of Israel asking him, what I need you to do for me is I got this commander, Naaman, a captain. He's a great commander. And he writes to the king of Israel. He said, this little maid here says that you can heal my commander. And it says, when the king of Israel read that letter, he tore his clothes. And listen, here's what the king of Israel said. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? In other words, he's saying only God can cure a man that is destined to die of leprosy. The king of Israel is like, I have no power whatsoever to do that. No man does, right? But if you know the story, what happens? It says Elisha, the prophet, he gets word that the king has torn his clothes. And he asked the king, he says, why have you torn your clothes? He says, just let the guy come to me, is what he says. Now listen, Elisha couldn't heal him either, right? But he is a prophet of God and prays to God on behalf of Naaman. And he gives Naaman a word from the Lord. He says, you do this. You go down to the Jordan River and you dip seven times and your flesh will be restored like a baby's, is what he tells him. And when Naaman obeys that and he's healed, listen to what he says. So the point we're trying to make here is God's the one that smites people with leprosy. When you see that in the Old Testament, and he is the one that cures it. Because after Naaman is healed, he says this in 2 Kings 5. He says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He's saying there is no God that can cure leprosy but the God of Israel, only the true God, can cure that disease. So it was assumed back in that day, though, that God wouldn't just afflict somebody with leprosy for no good reason. And so you had to do something fairly serious to get leprosy, to be smitten with leprosy from the Lord. And the chief sin that caused somebody to have leprosy was slander. Wow, that caused you to stop and think. And the other ones were murder incest, arrogance, saw that with Uzziah, robbery, and envy. And so we know about slander, don't we? Because Miriam's slander against Moses for marrying that Cushite woman, her and Aaron slandered Moses, caused the Lord to smite her with leprosy. And Aaron is pleading with Moses. He says, oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. He says, Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. So leprosy was something to be dreaded, to be smitten by God by it was no small thing, and only God could cure it. And God said, ah, oh, if she but just spit in her father's face, she'd at least be punished seven days. He said, put her out of the camp. So she's outside that camp until God heals her for seven days. And he's the only one that could cure her and bring her back, which he did. So that kind of puts things, when you think about God smiting someone, God is the only one that cures. The loathsomeness of this disease, ostracized from everyone, and mainly, especially, spiritually from the Lord. It is serious, this guy's condition. You look at this account now that we're reading here in Mark from a different perspective. So this guy is coming to Jesus. He knows he's no ordinary man. That's what we need to see about our Lord. No ordinary man when he approaches him. So he's not approaching him like he was a priest. You know, all the priests could do, a leper had to go to the priest. Jesus told this man to go to the priest. They could not cure anyone, though. All they could do was examine the person, and they could tell you whether you were clean or whether you were unclean. But they could not make you clean. They couldn't heal. And so this leper comes in Matthew's account, it's not here in Mark, and he kneels and calls him Lord. Now some guys will try to say that's just a polite, like, saying, sir. I don't believe so. I believe God opened his eyes to where he's seeing with what all he's doing, with all this authority that he has, and the reports going out, the baptism of John, he probably had heard of that. He knows that this is somebody special, the Lord, the Son of God. Heard of Jesus and all the great healings he was performing. And so this guy is desperate. And aren't we sometimes desperate to be healed by the Lord? I think there are times we're desperate. And it says he came to him beseeching Jesus, begging him, imploring. 
is what that word means. It's like, I am asking for help. Please help me. That's how he's approaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says he falls on his knees right in front of him. The way it was supposed to be, lepers weren't supposed to get near anybody. They were supposed to have 50 feet difference between them and any other person. We're supposed to get near anybody. You know, in Luke 17, those 10 lepers, it said they stood at a distance from Jesus. They didn't get near him, and it says they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This guy is more desperate than that. He doesn't care. He's risking all, right? And he came to Jesus, and he kneeled in front of him, and he's begging him, if you are willing you can make me clean. If you're willing, I know you can do it. So he's not questioning Jesus' power or ability. And a lot of times, we don't question that, do we? That's not what we're struggling with. He's just not sure if he's worthy. We don't know his background. It doesn't really say. But he's just not sure that Jesus, a man that is filled, he knows he is filled with the spirit and power of God and the wisdom of God. He's not sure if Jesus is willing to heal him. He's done it for others. Now, what do we read there in Mark chapter 1, in verse 41? What does it say? It says, and Jesus was what? Moved with compassion. His heart went out to this man. Think of that. The Son of God was moved with pity at the sight of this man whom Luke says, in Luke's account, it says this man was covered with leprosy. From head to foot, covered with leprosy. Nobody else would have looked at this man the way Jesus did. Everybody else, they're going the other direction as soon as they see this guy. There's no pity in their heart for him. They'd have been running away from him, and they'd have been throwing rocks at him. Because he's considered unclean, he's considered under a curse, and it's contagious. They want nothing to do with this guy. He's not even supposed to be around anybody, but not the Lord. This is a truly pitiful sight, this guy coming to Jesus, kneeling in front of him. Can't imagine what he would have looked at. And he's looking at somebody in front of him, the Lord Jesus, that is disfigured and deformed. And you think about it. Who's the one looking at this guy? The one whose image he's made in. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gave life to this man. And he knows that. And look, everybody else is running away, but I'll tell you who's not running away. Jesus. He is not running away. You know why? Because we talked about it last time. He came to destroy the works of the devil. This is his creation. The devil is disfiguring covered from head to foot with this leprosy, this loathsome disease. He's saying, marred and disfigured my creation. I'm not running from this, is what the Lord would have said. And he did what no Jew would have done. It says he reached out his hand. He stretched out his hand and touches the leper. Because the law said, if you touch a leper, you are unclean. If you touch a leper... But what's the design of the law? The design of the law is to show we need a savior. and We need a healer. <laughs> That's what it does. The law declares us unclean. And we need help like this leper that only God can bring. Defiled and unclean. The law says you touch a leper and you're unclean at least for a day, if not longer. You're unclean. You can't go in the temple. You're considered unclean. But the touch of Jesus works the opposite way, right? Didn't it? Instead of receiving uncleanness from the leper, you've got the power and purity and the cleansing of the Spirit of God going out from Jesus into this man is what's happening there, into that leper. And it says immediately he was cleansed and healed. And just put yourself in that guy's shoes. I mean, you're in a desperate situation. You feel miserable. You know you're an outcast. He probably had sin in his life. That's what we've seen. And he's kneeling in front of Jesus, begging him for help. Oh, Lord, if you're willing, you could make me clean. And he's saying that. He probably had his eyes closed and his head down. And suddenly, he feels something he had never felt. The touch of compassion on his shoulder. The Lord touching him. Imagine that. God 
reaching his hand and putting it on your shoulder because you're in a bad way to go. Touch of compassion. And you hear this voice saying, I am willing, be thou cleansed. So we talked the other day about it's only a look, only a look at Jesus and you can have salvation, healing, whatever you need. And what do we have here? Not just only a look, only a touch is all you need. Only a touch from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all it took. As one man said, the touch of Jesus spoke more loudly than words. And the words of Jesus touched the leper more deeply than any act of human love. I mean, those words coming from the Son of God, oh, could you imagine? They'll say the same thing to us. I'm sure many people in here, many of you have experienced the touch of Jesus and heard those words, be thou healed, and seen the results of it. Nothing like it. Nothing you can experience is like that. And so what we need to see here in this text that we're looking at is the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, the compassion of Jesus towards our suffering, your suffering if you're his child, and his willingness to heal. Right? We don't have to twist his arm when we need healing. Now, this man, he came praying the prayer that many pray and are taught to pray, if it be thy will. He wasn't sure. You know, he might have been the first leper ever to be healed by Jesus. But he forever, Jesus did right here, forever settled the matter on the will of God to heal. He says, I am willing. And like we've heard many times here, he never turns anybody away in the New Testament. All that came to him in faith. Now, it didn't work in his own hometown because of unbelief. But all that came to him in faith got healed. Without exceptions, the way it worked. And he says, I will. And we're back to the basics of what prayer and faith are all about. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, This is the confidence that we can have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have past tense, not waiting to get it. We have the request which we have asked from him. Oh, read Bevington again if you need to. Bevington lived on that promise, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. He says, I know when I pray according to his will, and he'd gotten the matter on healing settled. Got it settled, and that's the way he lived. That I know I have it. And that's what he would quote back to the devil would quote that word back. I'm not waiting to get it, Mr. Devil. I may not feel manifested yet, but I have what God said he'll do for me. It's going to happen. And we see God's will made clear through the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the apostles, and the gifts that he has set in the church. And we quoted last time, Mark 16. Well, what does it say? You shall lay hands on the sick, and they what? They shall recover. We can have confidence in that. And why can we have confidence in that promise? How can that promise be made without a little asterisk beside it? Because that is God's will. And we can have confidence in that. We can. So we read in verse 42, that leprosy left that man immediately. And as soon, it says, verse 42, as soon as he had spoken, as soon as Jesus spoke those words, it says, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. Jesus tells him next, he says, look, I don't want you telling anybody about this because you're going to make it to where I can't minister in town anymore, which is exactly what the guy did. He did exactly what Jesus told him not to do. He says, well, I don't want you to tell anybody. I want you to go directly to the priest. Verse 44, he says, and he said unto him, see thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So the man is cured. He is 100% cured. But he can't go directly back into the community until he is declared clean by a priest. He has to be inspected by that priest. There's a procedure they went through and pronounced officially clean. So it's all back in Leviticus 14 if you ever want to read what the priest would have had to do, this elaborate ceremony. But we know two things from the Bible and the way people thought back then. This is what they believed. The number one, leprosy was a punishment for sin. There was a sin committed that a person is punished. 
The second thing was only God can heal it. And so what's that saying? When the Lord Jesus Christ, this man, comes to him and he directly, he doesn't pray, he doesn't have to get a word like Elisha did. He's directly healing this person. And what is that telling us? That he is what Mark said he was in chapter 1, verse 1. He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. And here's what's implied through this healing. In Jesus healing the leprosy of that man, it's implied that he was forgiven at the same time. So Jesus could have just as easily said, thy sins are forgiven, be clean. And so what we have is, that's why we move into the second chapter, because what is implied with this leprous man is implicitly stated with the paralytic, clearly brought out in the next account in chapter 2. And so we read there in verses 1 and 2, Jesus, he comes back to Capernaum. And this is where we know this was his home base. This was where he stayed. And look what it says there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And again, Jesus entered into Capernaum after some days. And word got out. It was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. So he didn't come back to Capernaum to put on a show, did he? What's the first thing he's doing when he's back there in that house? What's he doing? He's giving them what they really need. He's preaching the word to them. Because the word's what gives them faith. Miracles don't give you faith, do they? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Miracles can encourage your faith and quicken your faith, but they are not the basis of our faith. It's the word of God. Speaking the word. And they're coming to get more of a show, I believe these people are. But Jesus, he's saying, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you need. You know, it's funny how people are about all that. I don't know how many of you remember, but there was a big revival that took place a few years back. Some of you maybe were too young. It took place down in Brownsville. Supposedly, I've seen the, the opening meeting where all this happened. But in this meeting, supposedly people are being slain in the spirit. They're getting saved. Lives are being changed. Word got out about this. There was a line. I mean, that line stretched. It'd take you hours. To, and there were, a lot of times there wouldn't even be room to get into the main meeting hall where this outpouring is happening. And these people are being slain in the spirit and so on and so forth. Can't even get in there. It's kind of like what you're reading here. But what struck me was I heard many tapes of those meetings that took place when all this so-called spirit of God's manifesting all things. No gospel, no word preached at all. But they had another building next door where a guy that is a very good teacher is teaching the word. Had a couple tapes I heard on him teaching about what repentance is, which if I just got saved, man, that'd be a message I'd want to hear. It's a great message. Two messages. And you know what I heard about that? You could walk into that building anytime you wanted to. There was no lines at all and plenty of seats available. And I'm like, that's funny to me. You can't get in the one place and all these people are getting saved. And even after weeks, two weeks with all these saved people, they're not flocking, though, to hear the one thing that was needful. The word. No interest in that. They like to show because that's the way people are. And Jesus knew that. They like the bread. They like the healings. They like the miracles. But here we are again in chapter 2. And while he's teaching that word, we have some more desperate people coming on the scene. Some desperate men. They have a friend that can't walk, a paralytic. And they realize, man, with the crowd this size and them cramming around that door, there is no way we're ever going to get this man in to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so houses back then, they had flat roofs that slightly slanted, and there was a back staircase. It was either a ladder or they had stones stacked up. You could climb up there and get on top of that roof, and that's what they did. You could walk on those roofs. they go up there to get fresh air, dry their laundry out. Or pray like Peter did. We read about Peter doing that, going up on a roof and praying. So they had these big beams that went one direction and the other direction where they would put sticks and limbs across there. And then they would cake mud on there, let it dry, put thatch or tiles on top of it. That's what those roofs look like. You could dig through the mud and take those sticks away and then you got you a big hole to go through. And that's what these guys did. You know what it doesn't tell you? And people like to speculate about it, but it really doesn't matter. You know, you wonder, you're sitting here, if all of a sudden this roof, I start having things hit me. And, you know, would Jesus have kept teaching? 
was stuff falling down. It wasn't neatly done. <laughs> when you kept teaching, would the people have kept listening? Or they've been like most people would be. They're looking at what's going on up there. And he's lost them already, right? <laughs> you know, or did the guy that owns the house, was he complaining about it? It doesn't tell us anything about that because it really doesn't matter. The thing that matters is they were desperate to get that guy to Jesus and they lower him down in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, son, it's a term of endearment. Son, he says, your sins are forgiven. And I'm saying when you read that, especially if you're hearing that or reading that for the first time, you'd have to be like, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. That's what he says to this guy. They obviously brought this guy to be healed. We're looking at that from our viewpoint, our modern expectations, reading that into that story. Because we may not see there's a connection between this man's sins and his healing, but those people back then, they did. So there are many Old Testament scriptures that tie forgiveness and healing together. Psalm 41 says this, The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So until those sins are forgiven, you can't be restored. Psalm 41. Isaiah 38 says this, verses 16 to 17. O restore me to health and let me live. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. He's saying, now that I'm forgiven, Lord, restore me back to health. It can happen now. That obstacle's been removed. And what about this famous prayer? But what is it saying? Second Chronicles 7.14, we all know that. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he says, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, then I will heal their land. Healing and forgiveness. They knew that. Tied together. And so some New Testament scriptures attribute sickness to sin. You know, the man at the pool of Bethesda, he just could never quite get in there. When those angels troubled the water, somebody was always beating him to it. Jesus said, you know, will you be made whole? And da 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 And it happens. He's made whole. Jesus looks him up. After this guy's healed, Jesus looked him up. And he said this to him, John 5, 14. He says, behold, you are made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. You think about that? It's easy to just read and move on. You know what I thought was funny about that? It says that guy was 38 years in that condition. Sin no more. He, whatever sin he did was 38 years ago. And the Lord's having to remind him of that. Whatever you did 38 years ago, it's made you have to lay here for 38 years. He's saying, don't do that again. Lest a worse thing, I mean, what could be worse than laying there impotent for 38 years with nobody to help you? What could be worse than that? The Lord has to remind him of that. Don't do that sin again. That caused you to lay here for 38 years. You don't want that. You don't want something worse is what he warned him about. And Paul warned the Corinthians, some of them were partaking of communion in an unworthy manner, not rightly discerning the body. And he says, because of that, Paul doesn't just say a few of you are having issues. He says many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Many. So do you think having a bad attitude towards someone in the body could bring sickness or even death? Paul said that many were suffering because of that. That's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 11. I didn't write it. That's what it says, though. Just in case somebody's like, man, you're offending me. I'm in a trial. I haven't, I haven't done anything wrong. Okay, I, I can grant you that. Because it's not always the case. It doesn't always say that the case is sickness is a result of sin. You know, in Luke 13, that woman that had the spirit of infirmity, 18 years bowed down. Jesus says she is a daughter of Abraham and she ought 
to be released from that bondage. He doesn't imply she'd done anything to have that happen. In John 9, you know, they say, well, what happened to this guy? Who was the one that sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, what did he do being born blind? What kind of sins did he commit when he was born? He couldn't have done anything there outside of <laughs> the inherited depravity he has. But he's saying, no, his parents didn't do anything either. It's just so God could be glorified in this healing that's about to take place, right? And Job, we all know about Job. Job hadn't done anything worthy of those severe trials that came his way. He was blameless in his day, even though he had to repent later in the book. But that's not what brought that on. That was a test of his faith. So we have to have a balance to everything we say, right? But in the case of this paralytic, there is a direct connection that's being made between his sins and his conditions, we can't assume that sin's not the trouble. Like I said, we should examine ourselves when we get in a bad trial, a long stay in a trial. See what's going on. Examine ourselves to see if God's not trying to get our attention, if it's not a cause of chastisement. But Jesus told this man here, first thing he says to him is, son, your sins. So he had some that needed to be forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And the rabbis back then wrote, a sick man does not recover from his sickness until all his sins are forgiven him, as it is written. And then they quote Psalm 103, who forgives all thine iniquities and heals all thine diseases. But they would say there's an order to that, and it's put there on purpose. Forgives all your iniquities, and then he'll heal your diseases. That's what they would say. And Mark's trying to get that across, I believe, here, this relationship between sin and sickness. And we need to understand that. Because, listen, healing is important, isn't it? God promises it, and I will be staying on that, that we need to trust him for it, to heal us. But it is not the most important thing. And I'm not pairing one against another. Well, we need to worry about being forgiven and healing. We can give or take. And whether we trust God, we can give or take. I'm not saying that. But there is something more important. So God is concerned about your healing and your children's healing. He's very concerned about that. He's very concerned about our jobs. He's very concerned about our marriages and our life in general. The Lord's concerned about all of that. You can get all that worked out, and some people do. There's people in the world, they got great marriages. They got great jobs, and they're in great health. You can have all of that and still perish, can't you? If you die in your sins, there's not any of that is going to matter. So we taught one Sunday a while back what matters most. And if you would, please turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, I'm talking about what matters most. Beginning in verse 1, David writes, Blessed is he, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. And look what he says in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this, therefore, he says, shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. You are my hiding place, and you shall preserve me from trouble, and you will compass me about with songs of deliverance. So after that forgiveness comes, and knowing that your transgressions are covered... That is when your deliverance comes. When you have your forgiveness, your transgressions are covered. Then you can sing songs of deliverance. God will deliver you. And so back in Mark chapter 2, you know, when the scribes are questioning the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, Jesus asked them a question. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your bed and walk? And obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But you can't disprove that, can you? How do you demonstrate somebody's sins are forgiven? Now, here's the other part of that, though. It's not easier to do for the Lord to forgive somebody's sins because he has to die a bloody death for that to actually happen, right? We know that. Hardest thing imaginable. 
But Jesus is saying this. He's saying, if I can do the thing that seems the hardest, tell this man the thing you can verify that I've, whether I've done it or not, whether there's any authority in my words. He's saying the hardest thing it seems like to do, if I can do that, then I can do what seems to be the easier. I have the authority then to forgive this man's sins. In other words, a healing, that's hard evidence you can see, right? The other, you might be a little skeptical about it. But what we see here, Jesus tells that man to rise, take up your bed, and walk. That that authority is there for him to heal and also to forgive our sins. They're all the same authority. And he received that authority when? At the baptism of John. When he's endowed with the Spirit. And when the Father declares him to be the divine Son of God. That's where that authority's at. And it's still there. Remember, we talked about all authority in heaven and earth, he said, has been given unto me. And so look down in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 2. Look how this ends. He says, but that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, which he does. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately, boy, we see that word a lot in Mark's gospel. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth in front of everybody, insomuch that they are just dumbfounded, amazed, astounded, it says. And they glorify God, saying, we have never seen anything like that. Man, that is time for a revival to happen, isn't it? Oh, man, this man's sins are forgiven, and we know they're forgiven because we see this guy been on this bed for a long time. He's standing up and walking out of here, carrying that thing with a big smile on his face in front of everybody. In front of these scribes, they had to be totally humiliated. They're, they're coming at him saying, you're blaspheming. Their theology is correct. Only God can forgive sins. But they're not discerning that this is the Son of God, God in the flesh right in front of them. And they just found that out to their humiliation. And we're going to see the next accounts, they are just out to do him in from here on out. They are not going to accept the fact that he's God in the flesh. But we can. Our Lord that can forgive our sins, can cast out any spirits that we encounter in ourselves or others, or heal the most incurable diseases that only God can heal. That's what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. He does what only God can do because He is God. And He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here, that's what Mark's shown us up to this point, hasn't he? That Jesus Christ is indeed the very Son of God walking the earth, and He has this divine authority. That's what we've seen in, in these verses. Every aspect of His ministry, He teaches with authority, leaves the people in the synagogue. We've never heard anything like this, never heard any teaching. These words that have come with power. He's sure of Himself. Authority over unclean spirits. Never seen that before. He's able to heal directly two diseases that people back then, in their minds, only God can heal. We talked about one last week, a fever. Only God can heal a fever, and only God can heal leprosy. And so he's showing his authority over spirits because they knew that a fever came from spirits, and he's showing his ability to forgive sins, his authority to forgive sins, because that has brought the healing of this leper. That was the cause. And we're also seeing that with this paralytic. When his sins are forgiven, he has the authority to do that, and he has the authority to give strength to his legs and to have him to walk. Only God can do that. And so Jesus is either guilty of blasphemy, which these scribes are accusing him of, an imposter. He's just pretending. And they later say he's doing this by the power of the devil, and Jesus is like, that's absurd. The devil's not working against himself. That doesn't happen. He's either that, or you think about it. He is the God of Exodus. 1526, Yahweh Rophakah, I am, the great I am, I am the Lord, your healer. That's who he is. That's who our Lord Jesus Christ is, that lives inside of us, <laughs> Yahweh Rophakah. So let's go back to what we said at the beginning. This gospel that we're reading here allows us to see the power and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ who promises to walk with us and in us every day. 
He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The one who has promised, I will fight your battles. I'll go in front of you as we go forward to take the kingdom by force. It's not our power and strength. He's the one going ahead of us to fight our battles as we go to take that kingdom by force. And he's willing. He said that, I will. I am willing that we receive his power and authority for whatever our need is. And we have many needs. A lot of physical needs, right? And there's only one condition that's given. And it's not complicated. Trust and obey. That's all he asked. I thought about that song came to me. I want to end with this. That song came to me when I was working on this sermon. What a song. We need to learn that and sing it, song leaders. Can I give a pastoral command? It's a great song, though. But listen to the first few verses. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And the chorus goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And the second verse goes on to say this, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear not a sigh or a tear can remain when we trust and obey. Isn't that in our hearts to live that way? I think it is. I think we need to do that. And so let's go forth and determine that we are going to remember to walk with our Lord Jesus Christ when we get up every day. Acknowledge, say to him, Lord, you're living inside of me. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. You'll be with me with all of your power and authority that I can trust in that. And I'm going to walk with you today in the simplicity of that word. I'm just going to trust you and I'm going to obey you as you speak to me, right? And he'll be with us all through the day and all will be well. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your word that shows us the majesty and the beauty, the compassion and the power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ who saved our souls and lives inside of us and promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we thank you, dear Lord, for those promises. And I just ask you, Father, that you'll help us all to see what we need to separate ourselves from in this world. What is unclean that we're touching that we can get away from, Lord, that you will walk in us as you promise in your word? Because that's what we want, Lord. I ask you to put that desire in every person in here's word because we're in these last days and we need to walk in this world blameless. And I ask you'll do that for us. And that's our prayer from this place tonight in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.